The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Beyond, an hour-long program of science fiction, fantasy, and other weird worlds. This is your host, Beverly Prentice, and today I have a story by the author of Dune, Frank Hebert. This story is called The Daddy Box. To understand what happened to Henry Alexander when his son Billy came home with the first sulk, you're going to be asked to make several mind-stretching mental adjustments. These mental gymnastics are certain to leave your mind permanently changed. You've been warned. In the first place, just to get a loose idea of a feral's original purpose, you must think of it as a toy designed primarily for educating the young. But your concept of toy should be modified to think of a device which, under special circumstances, will play with its owner. You'll also have to modify your concept of education to include the idea of occasionally altering the universe to fit a new interesting idea. That is, fitting the universe to the concept rather than fitting the concept to the universe. The Feralsk originates with seventh-order multidimensional beings. You can think of them as sevens. Their other labels would be more or less incomprehensible. The sevens are not now aware and never have been aware that the universe contains any such thing as a Henry Alexander or his human male offspring. This oversight was rather unfortunate for Henry. His mind had never been stretched to contain the concept of a Ferolsk. He could conceive of fission bombs, nerve gas, napalm, and germ warfare, but these things might be thought of as silly putty when compared, which is a rather neat analogy because the shape of a Ferolsk is profoundly dependent upon external pressures. That is to say, although a Ferolsk can be conceived of as an artifact, it is safer to think of it as alive. To begin at one of the beginnings, Billy Alexander, age eight, human male, found the Feralsk in tall weeds beside a path across an empty lot adjoining his urban home. Saying he found it, described the circumstances from Billy's superficial point of view. It would be just as accurate to say the Feralsk found Billy. As far as Billy was concerned, the Feralsk was a box. You may as well think of it that way, too. No sense stretching your mind completely out of shape. You wouldn't be able to read the rest of this account. A box, then. It appeared to be about nine inches long, three inches wide, and four inches deep. It looked like dark green stone except for what was obviously the top. 
because that's where the writing appeared. You can call it writing because Billy was just beginning to shift from print to cursive, and that's the way he saw it. Words flowed across the box top. This is a daddy box. Billy picked it up. The surface was cold under his hands. He thought perhaps this was some kind of toy television. Its words projected from inside. Some of the words actually were coming out of Billy's own mind. Daddy box, he wondered. Daddy was a symbol identifier more than five years old for him. His daddy had been killed in a war. Now Billy had a stepfather with the same name as his real father's. The two had been cousins. New information flowed across the top. This box may be opened only by the young. That was a game the Feralsk had played and enjoyed many times before. Don't try to imagine how a Feralsk enjoys. The attempt could injure your frontal lobes. Now the box top provided Billy with precise instructions on how it could be opened. Billy went through the indicated steps, which included urinating on an anthill, and the box dutifully opened. For almost an hour, Billy sat in the empty lot, enraptured by the educational creative tableau thus unveiled. For his edification, human shapes in the box fought wars, manufactured artifacts, made love, wrote books, created paintings and sculpture, and changed the universe. The human shapes debated, formed governments, nurtured the earth, and destroyed it. In that relative time of little less than an hour, Billy aged mentally some 516 human years. On the outside, Billy remained a male child about 49 inches tall, weighed approximately 56 pounds, skin white but grimy from play, hair blonde and must. His eyes were still blue, but they had acquired a hard and penetrating stare. The motor cells in his medulla and his spinal cord had begun increasing dramatically in number with an increased myelization of the anterior roots and peripheral nerves. Every normal sense he possessed had been increased in potency and he was embarked on a growth pattern that would further heighten this effect. The whole thing made him sad, but he knew what he had to do, having come very close to understanding what a Ferelsalk was all about. It was now about 6.18 p.m. on a Friday evening. Billy took the box in both hands and trudged across the lot toward his back door. His mother, whose left arm still bore bruises from a blow struck by her husband, was peeling potatoes at the kitchen sink. She was a small, blonde woman, once doll-like, fast turning to mouse. At Billy's entrance, she shook tears out of her eyes, smiled at him, glanced toward the living room and shook her head, all in one continuous movement. She appeared not to notice the box in Billy's hands, but she did note the boy appeared very much like his real father tonight.
This thought brought more tears to her eyes, and she turned away, thus failing to see Billy go on into the living room, despite her silent warning that his stepfather was there and in a bad mood. The Ferolsk, having shared Billy's emotional reaction to this moment, created a new order of expletives, which it introduced into another dimension. Henry Alexander sensed Billy's presence in the room, lowered the evening newspaper, and stared over it into the boy's newly aged eyes. Henry was a pale-skinned, flabby man, going to fat after a youth spent as a semi-professional athlete. He interpreted the look in Billy's eyes as a reflection of their mutual hate. What's that box? Henry demanded. Billy shrugged. It's a daddy box. A what? Billy remained silent, placed the box to his ear. The Ferolsk had converted to faint audio mode, and the voices coming from the box for Billy's ears alone carried a certain suggestive educational quality. Why are you holding that damn thing against your ear? Henry demanded. He had already decided to take the box away from the boy, but was drawing the pleasure moment out. I'm listening, Billy said. He sensed the precise pacing of these moments, observed minute nuances in the set of his stepfather's jaw, the content of the man's perspiration. Is it a music box? Henry studied the thing in Billy's hand. It looked old, ancient, even. He couldn't quite say why he felt this. Again, Billy shrugged. Where'd you get it? Henry asked. I found it. Where could you find a thing like that? It looks like a real antique. Might even be jade. I found it in the lot. Billy hesitated on the point of adding a precise location to where he'd found the box, but held back. That would be out of character. Are you sure you didn't steal it? I found it. Don't you sass me. Henry threw his newspaper to the floor. Having heard the loud voices, Billy's mother hurried into the living room, hovered behind her son. What's, what's the matter? She ventured. You stay out of this, Helen, Henry barked. That brat of yours has stolen a valuable antique, and he's... China? He wouldn't. I told you to stay out of this, Henry glared at her. The box had assumed for him now exactly the quality he had just given its valuable antique. Theft was as good as certain, although that might complicate his present plans for confiscation and profit. Billy suppressed a smile. His mother's interruption, which he assumed to be fortuitous, since he did not completely understand the functioning of a Feralsk, had provided just the delay required here. The situation had entered the timing system for which he had maneuvered. Bring that box here, Henry ordered. It's mine, Billy said, as he said it. He experienced a flash of insight that told him they belonged as much to the box as it belonged to him. Look here, you disrespectful brat. If you don't give me that box immediately, we're going to have another session in the woodshed. Billy's mother touched his arm, said, Son, you'd better. Okay, Billy said, but it's just a trick box, like those Chinese things. I said, bring it here, damn it. Clutching the box to his chest now, Billy crossed the room, 
timing his movements with careful precision. Just a few more seconds. Now. He extended the box to his stepfather. Henry snatched the furls, was surprised at how cold it felt. Obviously stone, cold stone. He turned the thing over and over in his hands. There were strange markings on the top, wedges, curves, twisting designs. He put it to his ear, listened. Silence. Billy smiled. Henry jerked the box away from his ear. Trick, eh? The kid was playing a trick on him. Trying to make him look like a fool, we... Billy smiled. Henry jerked the box away from his ear. Trick, eh? The kid was playing a trick on him? Trying to make him look like a fool? So it's a box, Henry said. Have you opened it? Yes, Henry said. It's got lots of things inside. Things? What things? Just things. Henry had an immediate vision of valuable jewels. This thing could be a jewel box. How does it open? He demanded. You just do things, Billy said. Don't you play smart with me. I gave you an order. Tell me how you open this thing. I can't. You mean you won't? I can't. Why? It was as much an accusation as a question. Again, Billy shrugged. The box, well, it can only be opened by kids. Oh, for Christ's sakes. Henry examined the ends of the box. Damn kid was lying about having opened it. Henry shook the box. It rattled suggestively. One of the Furosk's better effects. Helen said, Perhaps if you let Billy... Henry looked up long enough to stare her down, then asked, Is dinner ready? Henry, he's just a child. Woman, I've worked all day to support you and your brat. Is this the appreciation I get? She backed toward the kitchen door, hesitated there. Henry returned his attention to the box. He pushed at the end panels. Nothing happened. He tried various pressures on the top, the sides, and the bottom. So you opened it, eh? Henry asked, staring across the box at Billy. Yes, you're lying. I opened it. Having achieved the effect you wanted, Henry thrust the box toward Billy. Then open it. Having achieved one of the moments he wanted and right on time, Billy went for the effect. He turned the box over, slid an end panel aside, whipped the top open and closed it, then restored the end panel and presented the closed box to Henry. See? It's easy. The Forosk, having achieved an educational node, convinced Henry that he'd seen gold and jewels during the brief moment when the box had been opened. Henry grabbed the box, wet his lips with his tongue. He pushed at the end panel. It refused to move. Grown-ups can't open it, Billy said. It says so right on the top. Henry brought a clasp knife from his hip pocket, opened it, and tried to find an opening around the top of the box. Billy stared at him. Billy's mother still hovered fearfully in the kitchen doorway. Henry had the sudden realization that they both hoped he'd cut himself. He closed the knife, returned it to his pocket, and extended the box toward Billy. Open it for me, 
I can't, ominously Henry asked, and why not? I can't let go of it when it's open. The Ferals concerted a sense of doubt into the situation without Billy suspecting. Henry nodded. This just might be true. The box might have a spring lock that closed when you let go of it. Then open it and let me look inside while you hold it, Henry said. I can't now without doing all the other things. I can't open it twice without the other things, but what other things? Oh, like finding a grass seed and breaking a twig, and I'd have to find another anthill, the one I, of all the damn fool nonsense. Henry thrust the box toward Billy. Open this. I can't, Billy's mother said. Henry, why don't you? Helen, you get the hell out of here and let me handle this. She backed farther into the kitchen. Henry said, Billy, either you open this box for me or I'll open it the hard way with an axe. Billy shook his head from side to side, dragging the moment from its proper curve. Very well, Henry heaved himself from the chair. The box clutched in his right hand, angry elation filling him. They'd done it again, goaded and beyond endurance. He brushed past Billy, who turned and followed him. He thrust Helen aside, brushed past Billy, who turned and followed him. He thrust Helen aside when she put out a pleading hand. He strode out the back door, slamming it behind him, then heard it open. The patter of Billy's footsteps following. Let the brat make one protest. Just one. Henry set his jaw, headed across the backyard toward the woodshed. That anachronism that had set the tone and marked the age of this house, modest older home, in quiet residential area. Now Billy called from behind him. What are you going to do? Henry stifled an angry retort caught by an odd note in Billy's voice, an imperative. Daddy, Billy called. Henry stopped at the woodshed door, glanced back. Billy never called him Daddy. The boy stood in the path from the house. His mother waited on the back porch. Now, why was I angry with them? Henry wondered. He felt the box in his hand, looked at it. Jewels? And this dirty green little piece of stoneware? He was filled with a sense of his own foolishness, an effect achieved by a sophisticated refinement of Ferosk educational processing. Given a possible lesson to impart, the instructor could not resist the opportunity. Once more, Henry looked at the two who watched him. They'd done this deliberately to make him appear foolish. Damn them. Daddy, don't break the box, Billy said. It was a nicely timed protest, and it demonstrated how well he had learned from the Ferosk. His anger restored, Henry whirled away, slammed the box onto the woodshed's chopping block, and grabbed up the axe. Don't break the box. Wait, Billy called. Henry barely hesitated. A lapse, which put him in the precise phasing Billy wanted. Taking careful aim, Henry brought the axe hissing down. 
he still felt foolish because it's difficult to shake off a feral's lesson. But anger carried him through. At the instant of contact between blade and box, an electric glimmer leaped into existence around the axe head. To Billy, watching from the yard, the blade appeared to slide into the box, shrinking, shining, drawing inward at an impossible angle. There came an abrupt, juicy, vacuum-popping noise, a cow pulling its foot out of the mud. The axe handle whipped into the box after the blade vanished with a diminishing glimmer. Still clutching the axe handle, Henry Alexander was jerked into the box, down, down, shrinking, whoosh. The pearl glimmering winked out. The box remained on the chopping block where Henry had placed it. Billy darted into the woodshed, grabbed up the box, and pressed it to his left ear. From far away came a leaf-whispering babble of many angry and pleading voices. He could distinguish some of the names being called by those voices. Abdul, Cherudish, Pablo, James, Sremani, Harold, and, on a low and diminishing wail, Billy! Having taught part of a lesson that Ferrells recognized that the toy plus play element remained incomplete. By attaching a label at the proper moment, Billy had achieved a daddy linkage. But no daddy existed now for all practical purposes. There were voices, of course, in certain essences, an available gene pattern from which to reconstruct the original. Something with the proper daddiness loomed as a distinct possibility. And the Furalsk observed an attractive learning pattern in the idea. A golden glow began to emerge from one end of the box. Billy dropped it and backed away as the glow grew and grew and grew. Abruptly, the glow coalesced and Henry Alexander emerged. Billy felt a hand clutch his shoulder, looked up at his mother. The box lay on the ground near the chopping block. She looked from it to the figure that had emerged from it. Billy, she demanded, what, what happened? Henry stooped, recovered the box. Henry, she said, you hit that box with the axe, but it's not broken. Huh? Henry Alexander stared at her. What are you talking about? I brought the damn thing out here to make sure it was safe for Billy to play with. He thrust the box at Billy, who took it and almost dropped it. Here, take it, son. But Billy was pestering you, she said. You said you'd... Helen, you nagged the boy too much, Henry said. He's just a boy, and boys will be boys. Henry winked at Billy. Yes, son? Henry reached over and mussed Billy's hair. Helen backed up, releasing Billy's shoulder. She said... But you, you, it looked like you went into the box. Henry looked at the box, then at Helen. He began to laugh. Girl, it's a good thing you got a man who loves you, because you are weird. You are really weird. He stepped around Billy, took Helen gently by the arm. Come on, I'll help you out with dinner. She allowed herself to be guided toward the house. 
her attention fixed on Henry. Billy heard him say, You know, honey, I think Billy could use a brother or a sister. What do you say? Henry! Henry's laughter came rich and happy. He stopped, turned around to look at Billy, who stood in the woodshed doorway holding the box. Stay where you can hear me call, Bill. Maybe we'll go to a movie after dinner, eh? Billy nodded. Hey, Henry called. What are you going to do with that funny box? Billy stared across the empty lot to the home of his friend Jimmy Carter. He took a deep breath, said, Jimmy's got a catcher's mitt he's been trying to trade me. Maybe he'd make it for the box. Hey, Henry said, maybe he would at that. But look out, Jimmy's old man doesn't catch you at it. You know what a temper he has. I sure do, Billy said. I sure do, Dad. Henry put his arm around Helen's shoulder and headed once more for the house. Hear that? he asked. Hear him call me Dad? You know, Helen, nothing makes a man happier than to have a boy call him Dad. It Goes So Fast by Lisa Papadimitriou The suicide was unexpected good news. In an apartment block that held over 35,000 people, it happened right next door. Andy was a young man, too. No telling how many years he might have lived in that apartment. Now it would be empty and, no doubt, for sale. Right next door, Shella said aloud. Aren't we lucky? Tolly looked up at her, smiling at the bright tone in his mother's voice. He was six months old and sitting up now. Turning back to the small yellow bowls stacked in front of him, Tolly's chubby fingers reached for the largest. He bit down on the plastic rim then pulled it away from his mouth and frowned in concentration. Bah, he said. That's right, Sheila agreed. Bowl. With awkward deliberateness, Polly set down his large bowl and jerked toward the small one, which was just out of his reach. Absently, Shella handed it to him as she glanced around the tiny white-walled apartment. There was one small bathroom, one closet, and one room for everything else. The furniture, the table, the vid screens, the bed, the couch was carefully designed to be opened for use or folded away to leave an empty white space. It was easy to clean and Shella kept it spotless. The kitchen was tacked onto the end of the living room, which was also the area in which Shella slept and the area in which she ate her meals and the area in which Tolly played and the area in which Shella gazed out the window through a thin scrim of grime and watched the clouds crawl across the slanted, reflective surface of the building across the street. It was a good neighborhood, full of functional, tidy apartments like her own. She was lucky. Her husband earned plenty of credits. Offshore work paid well. Most people didn't want to miss six to twelve years of life on their home planet and then return only three years older than when they left. 
when John came back, she would be older than he was. Imagine that. And Tolly would be in elementary school or perhaps even well out of it. But John was practical and knew when to seize an opportunity. Credits open doors, he had said, and it was those credits that allowed them to get this apartment and even to have a baby. Shella had never thought she'd be wealthy enough to meet the regulations, but she hadn't realized how much babies changed the tapestry of everyday life, how many things they need, how many things parents need, all of which cluttered up a minuscule apartment. And babies grow. Tolly couldn't just continue sleeping in the closet. Though he was a bit late with crawling, he'd undoubtedly be all over the apartment soon. The place was too small and growing smaller, and there was no place larger, at least none in the city. In this neighborhood, everyone took biminics, which meant that they were aging like vampires. As John had pointed out on their last vid call, only poor people die now. Unless, Shella thought, of her next-door neighbor's apartment, then realized how awful that thought was. Well, it wasn't her fault that he died, was it? She didn't really think it was, but still, she scanned her memo decks just to be sure. Paging through memories of the last three years, she replayed all of her minute interactions with the next-door neighbor, who the Memodex prompted, was named Alej. He was handsome, with light brown skin and black hair, straight as a pin. His teeth were white and perfectly even, though there were only two recorded instances of his smile in Shella's Memodex. Well, they had only exchanged hellos 14 times in three years, and he didn't look unhappy at any of those moments. Shella closed the index. It wasn't her fault. She couldn't have known. She felt liberated to focus on her good luck. If she could combine her own studio with the one next door, she'd have a palace. It would be large enough for two sleeping rooms that were separated by walls from the space where they sat and ate. Of course, the trick was getting approval from the building committee. They would see reason, wouldn't they? Certainly babies were scarce enough. He was cute. That might sway them. They might understand that the closet, not a particularly large closet, just the standard size, wasn't big enough for a child, and it would never do for a teen. Tolly was frowning at the bowls in concentration, stacking, unstacking. He loved the bowls. He was busy. Shella scanned through her old memories to see if there was any information on the committee members that might be useful. Perhaps she could charm someone? Trade something? The index flicked past as Shella searched it carefully for conversations with members of the committee focusing in on reactions and other small details that she hadn't noticed the first time. Mr. Mollison would be easy. He hadn't put up a fuss about Galloway's renovations, 
or the Fongs either, Ms. Perez. She was more unpredictable. Pichella came across an old conversation they'd had. Ms. Perez's daughter, Leticia, was interested in working offshore. Shella had said that she would connect her with Jan, but she hadn't done it. Shella sent a reminder to connect Letitia with Albert on the ground office and added it to her task list. Who knows? There might be an opening. Then Miss Perez would owe Shella a favor. Shella felt a flash of gratitude that she had managed to get, get the memodex implant three years prior. It had been a true sanity saver in the long, dull afternoons with Tolly. Of course she loved her son, of course. But time dilated in the days she was with the baby. It was solitary, but it wasn't really exactly peaceful. Rather, the long months of his infancy felt like a plodding trek across a wide desert. The landscape offered little interest. The hours passed slowly as she focused on putting one foot in front of the other toward a destination that existed only vaguely in her mind. She was at a strange nexus in life. Her old friends, her childless friends, did not understand her anymore. But she did not have yet other friends with children. There were one or two mothers she knew by sight, at the park, but there is a huge difference between friends you've met six weeks ago and friends you've been close to for ten years, and John was gone, of course. The Memodex was a comfort. In it, she could visit any day she liked, any day that had taken place in the past three years, her wedding day with John, her last birthday, the moment Tolly was placed in her arms, and each happy memory was linked to hundreds of others. She went back to a normal Saturday, one before Tolly had been born. It was just her and John waking up with each other in the fold-down couch, feeling each other's bodies, the warmth of his pale skin against her own dark limbs. She re-experienced their breakfast that morning, cracking the eggs into a bowl, watching John as he whisked them with a fork and poured the foamy liquid into a pan. She smelled them as they sizzled, watched as John served them on plates with toast and let each forkful melt against her tongue. After a moment, she noticed a feeling in her stomach and switched off the index. Tolly was crying, and a thick, feral smell hung in the air. He had soiled his diaper. She looked out the window and saw that the light had shifted. It was late afternoon. How long had she been in the memo decks? All right, all right, she cooed as she picked up her son. He whimpered, and she wiped away his tears and smoothed his damp hair against his scalp. Let's clean you up and get you something to eat. Would you like that? Some banana? You want banana? She plunged back into the routine of the day, another step across the desert. Shella felt a hand on her arm and her eyes shifted focus. She was under a tree, with Tolly asleep in the half-pod by her feet. A petite, elegantly dressed woman was seated beside her. 
It was so hard to know how old anyone was, but Shella could tell by the expression on her face that this woman was a mother. Perhaps even a grand or a great grand. She smiled down at Tully and asked, How old? Seven, almost eight months, Shella said, trying to keep her voice neutral. She didn't want to offend the woman. It wasn't her fault that she was the same as every other woman of indeterminate age who had experienced motherhood and left it behind. Shella could read her expression, the softness around the eyes, the dreamy smile. She was a treasure-the-moments person. Amnesiacs, Shella thought, every single one of them. They should all get a memodex so that they can remember the soul-crushing boredom of spending all day with a baby. Savor every moment, the woman said. It goes so fast. That's what they say, Shella replied. But what she thought was, it does not go fast. It goes slowly, more slowly than pain. Overhead, a breeze lifted the leaves, which fluttered, making the dappled sunlight dance across her face, her hands, her lap. There was a shout from the playground, and Shella watched a small boy in red chase another in blue, playing the kind of games that are only comprehensible to small children. The woman's voice droned as she talked about her daughter, who was now a lead tech somewhere on one of the other continents. Shella nodded and smiled at the appropriate pauses. It didn't matter if she listened. She knew that much. Her role was simply to be the audience. After a while, Tolly began to fuss. Shella announced that it was time for his supper. She sang softly to him as she snapped the half-pot into plane and pushed the pram over the cobbled path. The bumps seemed to soothe him, and Tolly quieted down. He gazed up at her, kicking, then smiled at her song. It occurred to Shella that this was a moment that she might miss some day in the future when she was an older woman on a bench, one whose baby had grown up and left and now lived on another continent, doing something important and lucrative. Of course, she would be able to relive this moment in the Memordex whenever she wanted. It was an amazing time to be alive. You could practically live forever. You could re-experience anything you wanted. There was so much more life. That's what these older women didn't understand. There was no need to treasure the moments now. The committee wasn't sure that Shella could buy the apartment next door. There was Mrs. Langridson to consider. Mrs. Langridson lived in the apartment under the dead man's. She despised noise. She's over a hundred years old, Ms. Perez explained, pausing to blow across the top of her coffee. And she has a lot of time on her hands. She looks 40, Shella said. Anyone can look 40, Ms. Perez tugged at Tolly's foot, and he flapped his arms. She doesn't sleep well. She says the renovation will give her headaches, and I think she doesn't want any little feet pitter-pattering above her. 
So few people have children these days with the regulations. She'd rather we just sell to a nice single person. The mug in her hands was warm, almost too warm, but Shella didn't move her fingers. She kept them wrapped around the porcelain as she forced herself to think. She had received word from John. She was to get the apartment no matter the cost. He was sure it would be a good investment. It was not only good for the baby, but absolutely necessary for when he returned. Tolly giggled a hip-cupping baby belly laugh as Miss Perez bounced him on her knee. This is the way the farmer rides, she sing-songed. Kerplop, kerplop, kerplop. He laughed again. And so did Miss Perez, the edges of her eyes crinkling. Shella imagined Miss Perez playing this same game with her own daughter when she was small. How did Letitia's interview go, Shella asked. Miss Perez squeezed Holly in a hug, then resumed bouncing her on her knees. She said it went beautifully. Thanks so much for making the connection. Do you suppose there's anything I can do? Shella asked about Mrs. Langridson. Ms. Perez cocked her head and made a face at Tolly, who reached for her cheek with chubby fingers. Her eyes softened as she took his hand and placed it against her lips, giving his palm a kiss. Tolly giggled, and Ms. Perez looked up Shella. I'm sure we'll figure it out, she said. Months passed. Stella was drowning in minutiae, but between the meetings with the lawyer and the broker and the contractor, she felt as if her mind was alive again. It was boring to do so-called paperwork, though none of it was done on paper anymore, but it was a project that she could see the end of. This was a new use of the memodex, to be able to access old files which people gave her instructions. She replayed the meeting with her lawyer over and over, making sure that she filled out the applications correctly. She replayed conversations with the contractor to make sure that the plans covered everything. She replayed conversations with Mrs. Langridson to make sure that she was scheduling work on the days that she planned to be off-continent. But it was coming along. In three weeks, if everything was approved, the apartment would be hers. She could hardly believe that her dream was coming true. A huge apartment with space enough for Tolly to grow, with a separate room just for her and John. They wouldn't have to move out of the city or to the center west. Not that there was much more room in the suburbs at this point. They wouldn't have to find places on the last continent like some of Shella's classmates had. She was lucky. She knew it. She replayed the conversation in which her oldest friend Willa had told her that she was moving. Nothing's affordable, Willa had said, but the LC's very up and coming, you know. Andis and Mark are there. Shella had felt sorry for Willa then, but in replaying the memory, she was surprised to realize that Willa really seemed to believe what she was saying. Poor thing. Shella? Her eyes focused, and Shella realized that Ms. Perez was snapping her fingers in front of her face, looking up from the table that separated the cooking area from the rest of the apartment. She noticed the rose color of the walls. Then afternoon light was reflecting off the facade of the building across the street. 
I'm so sorry, Shella said, hauling herself to her feet. When she looked over at her son, she saw that he was holding on to the pram. The pram rolled forward. He took a jerky step, then another. Oh, yes, he's getting to be quite the little walker. Ms. Perez's voice was indulgent, but there was something in the tone that caught Shella up short. Had Tolly been walking? taking steps with the pram at Miss Perez's house? He hadn't been doing that with Shella, had he? Perhaps, during the time she was deep in the index, he had taken a step. Had she missed it? He took another tottering step forward. Bah, he said. Mama, mama. A silver thread of drool escaped from the corner of his mouth and dripped onto his blue shirt. His round little legs gave out and he sat down suddenly. He skipped crawling, Shella noted. Ms. Perez cocked her head. Some do that. Shella tried to read the tone of her voice. Had he crawled at Ms. Perez's apartment? Did Ms. Perez think she was negligent? Surely she must understand that Shella was doing all she could, that she wanted the bigger apartment for Tolly. For his sake, she would search the memo decks later. She didn't want to miss to see him, him crawl or walk. She'd wait until he was asleep and then fast forward through all the time she'd spent with him, just to make sure. Should I expect him tomorrow afternoon, Ms. Perez asked. Shella considered saying no, but a single glance at the files on her computer brought her up short. Could I bring him by at one? One day more. It had taken almost a year, but now Shella stood before the window, staring at the same view that was hardly a degree different from the one in her own apartment. The flat was empty. She would take ownership the next day. Then construction would begin. She could see the future, her future in her beautiful apartment. John's final work and travel estimate had come. In five years and three months, he would be home. Tolly would be in the first grade. She felt like a seedling breaking up through moist soil, reaching for the sun. There will be beautiful memories here, she thought. This will be your window, she whispered to Tolly, who let go of her hand and toddled over to investigate a dust bunny in the empty white corner. Oh, excuse me, said a voice behind her. Turning, Shella saw a woman of medium height and indeterminate age. Her hair was pale platinum and her eyes the new fashionable shade of green. There was something familiar about her shy smile, her even teeth. Can I help you? Yes, I... The woman's eyes darted around the room, landing on Tolly, who was seated, his tiny fingers manipulating lint. The woman's expression shifted. Her smile gained confidence. Yours? Yes, Tolly. And then to avoid the inevitable question. A year and a half. A mother, she realized. A treasure of the moments. The woman nodded. I remember that age. Her eyes were soft. That was long ago. Did you want something? I'm the owner, 
the woman explained, and when Shella seemed confused, she added, of this apartment. Oh, you're the... In a flash, Shella stopped herself. She had almost said, the mother. Angie's mother. The mother whose son's death was the good news that was changing Shella's life. She didn't think these things clearly, of course. She only felt them in the half instant. It took her to twist her lips away from the word mother. You're the seller, and I'm the the buyer. Yes, the woman nodded. Tomorrow's owner. I'm sorry. I thought that since everything had been moved out, I just wanted to see it. The mothers gazed at each other for a moment, and Shella was overcome with the uneasy feeling of being someplace where she did not belong, of intruding on someone else's private moment. The woman's gaze drifted to the window with the glass on the building across the street, reflected dim shadows of the blue sky and the diaphanous clouds scudding across it. A gray and white pigeon swooped past. This was his view, the woman said. I wanted to come and see it to put it in my memo decks. Shelley wondered how many memories of her son the woman had stored in the index. Many, Shella hoped. In a way, she could be with him whenever she wanted. In a way, her son would be alive for the rest of the mother's long, long life. In a way. But it seemed wrong to say that somehow. The woman walked over to Tully and touched his dark curls gently then joined Shella at the window. Silently, the mothers stood looking up at the sliver of blue sky between the buildings. The Most Expensive Family Vacation on Record by Sheldon J. Picardi When I was five years old, my dad took me to a construction site. There, down in the clean blonde earth, he operated heavy machinery alongside the other masters of the universe, gods I had not known existed, who dug the bottomless square holes where skyscrapers went. I mostly stayed out of the way, nothing to do but climb on the pickup from the roof of which I could only catch glimpses of what was happening down below, behind a fence, but I never got bored. From then on, whenever I thought of my dad, I saw him at the steering levers of a giant excavator, showing me how to do something and be something in the world. Though today I'm sure that the only reason he took his young son to a construction site was that my mom was busy and couldn't find a sitter. A decade ago, I wanted my dad to die. Or, I should say... I planned for him to die, like you planned to buy a house or planned to retire. A childhood love remained, but it was remote. You never quite lose that innocent affection, no matter who raised you, but in time it becomes just a spot of calm at the eye of a storm. You're the storm. Say, getting lectured by your dad just because you're sick of sports after eight years of sinking your time into baseball and track. You quit now, you'll look like a quitter. You want to look like a quitter when you apply to college? 
and you think you're fighting your way out. You launch yourself into a prestigious college a thousand miles away. You start a company, an environmental lobby your dad calls having tea parties with rich people. You marry another man to his dismay to put yourself into the world, to reveal the true permanent you. But the tranquil peace never comes. You are not fighting your way through the storm. You are feeding it. The chance late in life to save my father, to bring back that heroic core, exhausted by injuries and workman's comp and finally dementia, was arriving as early as 2026, when the FDA approved metformin for prevention of age-related morbidities, i.e. for extending life. My husband and I were already health nuts, taking things like NMN and Reversitrol to stop our 40s from turning into our 50s. But people our parents' age were dying and resigned to dying. We didn't even try to advise them. To them, we would have been talking science fiction. Nor was I motivated to save him, as I mentioned. His impact on my life amounted to little more than the threat of difficult conversations. But it was enough. Around a dinner table, he could barely look at Tom. That first Christmas, when everyone was crowded around the living room bar for eggnog doctored with whiskey and nutmeg, Tom had to lean forward and ask for one. After that, he didn't bother. When the dementia started, I came to expect a greeting that went something like, you still a f-? I wasn't enjoying my father's decline. It was just a fact. He was dying, and that was fine. A problem that didn't need my attention. I had the old folks' home conversation thoroughly planned a couple of years before it was time. Then he tripped an alarm, wandering away from home one afternoon, and he wouldn't answer his phone. Though it was the old neighborhood, which he knew like his soul, the map showed him zigzagging across town, doubling back, and finally roaming around the junior high school. It was getting dark, so I cut a meeting short to go pick him up, beating the medical text by 20 minutes. By then, he had settled down. He was sitting in the top row of the aluminum bleachers by the practice fields in near darkness, elbows on his stick-thin thighs, his eyes darting up in fright the clanging of my footsteps. He calmed down as I approached. About time, he yelled. Hi, Dad. I sat down on the metal bench. What's that? Cheese. I thought it was going to be just me. Well, everybody's on the way. You left the geofence. That's right. I went right through it, and they never saw me. Ah. Dad, you do remember what the geofence is for. People are watching me. Exactly. I'm one of them. Through darkness slightly underlit by solar light nightlights screwed into the benches, his eyes tried to read my face. 
He dropped his voice an octave as he used to do while throwing around his parental authority. Then you're trespassing. No, Dad, you're the one outside the zone. Remember we met with Dr. Meta? We drew a map? If you can't stick to this routine, then you can't keep living alone. Oh, yeah? I have rights. Suddenly I was in a shouting match with a conspiracy nut. I was the IRS tracking his spending. I was ICE trying to frame him. I was the church trying to catch him at a gentleman's club. Zero handholds for bringing him back to reality. I stopped arguing and just told him to relax. Let's go home, I said. I'm staying right here. I'll mix up a nightcap and we can talk. We need to have a talk. No. Yes. No. It's about to start. They put my son on shortstop. This fervor caught me off guard. He was more lost than I had thought. He was crazy, but this raw childish possessiveness, I didn't doubt it, despite never having seen it before, not exactly. Not animated so intensely by pride for me, for the little boy he had taught and trained and hoped to see triumph. I took a deep breath. Let's give him five more minutes, I said. But I think someone said the game was canceled. Let me check my phone. I started asking doctors more questions. Though DNA health was largely a solved problem for the young by 2038, an older patient still had to go to Europe for treatments that could turn back the clock. And they weren't perfect. Gene therapy wasn't going to bring back missing teeth. Cartilage didn't just reappear. The best we could do was a semi-destructive refresh of most tissues, including the brain. After the most expensive family vacation on record in which Tom and I shared in the less aggressive treatments, we were literally a new family. Like expectant parents, we had known the change was coming, months of recovery from my father in the downstairs guest room, child-proofing a home. We had never imagined containing children, taking turns father-sitting. And like expectant parents, we were facing the future blind. His speech came back quickly. It was like teaching a bright toddler, because the missing words were all lurking just below the surface. His personality was a different story. He laughed at the silliest things, like a hebrophenic. The cat climbing the screen door spilled milk. To me, he had simply been erased. We had spent a fortune not to save my dad, but to bring a whole new person into the world. We liked him, this new version of my dad, who did remember me and knew, learned, that I was his son, and who took my husband right away. Tom's funny, he literally shouted at dinner one day. I like Tom. A miraculous turnaround at the cost of erasing most of who he was. 
He was our child for the next few years, and then our grown child, mind mature, body restored enough to return to office work in construction. He ceased to be my past, the bedrock protection and authority surrounding childhood, because now I was that for him. His future was my future, too, supercharged with my hopes and fears for a living being I had helped to make. Is he still my dad? I still love him. I love the giant man in boots and bright yellow hard hat who was once building the very world I had been born into. But I have stopped asking that question. I see now that families are as changeable as any living thing. The rehabilitation plan from the Swiss clinic was just another phase in our development. Like me leaving for college. The exercises were all play. Board games, puzzles, sports. The first time we took my dad to the park to throw a ball around, his face lit up in wonder. He knew he had just found a big part of himself. He punched the old glove two or three times and had the words right away. Put her there, kid. Put her right there.